Welcome to a special episode of the Global Dispatches podcast. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And each day this week, we are bringing you live coverage from the 76th United Nations General Assembly. The annual opening of the UN General Assembly is always one of the most important weeks on the diplomatic calendar, and this year the podcast has partnered with the United Nations Foundation to provide listeners with daily news and expert analysis to give you the context you need to understand what is driving the diplomatic agenda at the United Nations during this key week. We are recording today's episode live at 4 p.m. in the afternoon on Friday, September 24th. This is the final day of our live coverage of the 76th UN General Assembly, and today's show features three excellent guests. Yesterday, I spoke with Peter Maurer, the president of the International Committee for the Red Cross. He had recently participated in a G20 meeting on Afghanistan on the sidelines of UNGA, And in our conversation, we discuss ongoing diplomacy around the crisis in Afghanistan. Our final guest is the president and CEO of the United Nations Foundation, Elizabeth Cousins. She is a veteran of many UN General Assemblies, having previously served as deputy U.S. ambassador to the United Nations. We discuss her key takeaways from this week in diplomacy. But first up, I am glad to introduce Kanika Chavla, Program Manager with UN Energy at Sustainable Energy for All. Welcome, Kanika. Hi, I'm so happy to be here. Well, thank you so much for joining us in what has been a very busy day. Uh, Earlier this morning, the Secretary General hosted an apparently very consequential meeting on energy and energy transitions called the High Level Dialogue on Energy. Before we discuss what happened at this meeting, can you set the scene for us? Why was this meeting called in the first place? Thank you. No, I think that that you're absolutely right that it is. It was, in fact, a very consequential meeting and the day is is not yet done. Um, And we have several... you know, global leaders from around the world who are continuing to make their interventions. But but to talk about why this day is really important. In 2019, the UN General Assembly agreed that there was a need for a global dialogue on energy. And the last time that there was a Secretary General-led summit on energy at the UN General Assembly was 40 years ago. So while we talk about a lot of um, energy as kind of a lever for climate action and that that's something, you know, that that's discussed often and widely, what we don't do enough of is to think about energy and all of its intersectionalities. And in... Uh, 1981, uh, when the last of these dialogues happened, the world was facing an energy crisis. Um, and it was it was the global oil crisis. And to me, I think that this is a signal of the global community and leaders from around the world uh, having agreed in, uh, in 2019 that there was, in fact, yet another energy crisis. And to my mind, one that's much more deeply entrenched than an episodic oil crisis, but one, one that perhaps uh, impacts every element of the economy. And since 2019, since the decision for having this high-level dialogue was made, that has only, uh, the the crisis has been exacerbated by COVID-19 in two ways. One, COVID-19 has pushed millions back into poverty, um, including 
taking away energy access from, from millions more than that than was already the case. Um, but second, I think it's shown the world the mirror of what existential crises really can do. Um, and, and both the energy and climate crisis are really existential crises that are here today, not something that is any longer far away in the future. Uh, so a press release I received earlier today from the United Nations touted $400 billion in new commitments mobilized uh, as a consequence of this meeting. What were some, like, what was some of those uh, commitments? Can you kind of walk me through a few highlights? Sure. Um, we were really focused at the, at the time of, uh, you know, in the run up to this day, um, there's been a long preparatory process and we were really focused during that preparatory process to think about what can we do to catalyze action out of this momentum that is developing because of this moment, because of this dialogue. Um, and that's why we came up with the concept of energy compacts. So energy compacts are voluntary commitments that are open to all stakeholder groups, governments, private sector, civil society, international organizations, including UN agencies and others. And the aim is that we need while we, it's really important to have long-term goals and we've, the world has made progress on having you know, goals, whether in the form of the Paris Agreement, the 2030 Development Agenda, you know, a lot of net zero kind of goals coming from mid-century, what are the actions that we can take today, tomorrow, the next year and the year after that towards those long-term goals? Um, and so that's what the energy compacts are. They're a series of commitments of actions in these energy compacts, you are absolutely right. We have received commitments of over $400 billion of investment and finance. And in addition to that, we've also received commitments of catalytic partnerships of capital that will be catalyzed. Can you maybe just uh, just cite one or two examples sure. just to give listeners a flavor of, of what we're talking about? Absolutely. So what I do want to say is that this includes government. So we've received um, over $60 billion of commitments from governments. Um, and, and these include, you know, governments like the UAE, Nigeria, um, the United States, India. Uh, all of these countries have put forward energy compacts. And then also from private sector, um, very large commitments coming forward from Iberdrola, NL. Um, and, and several other energy companies. But also, um, I also like to mention the role of innovative kind of commitments, right? So for instance, one I'd like to point out is the commitment that the Rockefeller and Ikea foundations have made where they've put forward a $1 billion commitment um, to end energy poverty by 2030. And this is a billion dollars of capital that they will use in concessional ways to bring others along with them. But also, I, I, I would be remiss to not mention international organizations, including UN organizations like the World Bank, EBRD, um, UNDP, SE for All. All of us have put forward really hard commitments of what we're going to do. Um, and this process will be monitored annually. So, so no one can get away from it anymore. Well, that was going to be my next question. You know, you have these commitments. How do you make sure that people actually follow through on them? So there's, there's a two two-step answer to that. Um, one is the fact that there will be an annual reporting requirement. All commitments are made to UN Energy. They're reviewed by UN Energy. They're living documents, so you can enhance, add, um, you know, all of those things. You can, these, these, they will grow, and the energy space is so dynamic as well um, that, that there will definitely be things that will come up in the coming years that you can add to your commitment. Um, but there will also be an annual reporting requirement. So all the commitments are really quite specific and they're quantifiable and we have baseline information that's also been provided. All of this is available already online. So there's quite a lot of transparency as well. 
But the second element of this is it's not about naming and shaming. It, the, the word compact actually suggests a collaborative approach. Um, and, and so there will be a UN Energy Energy Compact Action Network that will facilitate collaboration, matchmaking, and working together and, and supporting all of the commitments that have come forward. Also, you know, complementing that with a UN Energy offer so that we can go towards our common goals together, but faster. Uh, well, Kanaka, thank you so much for your time. I will let you get back to this meeting. Uh, again, thank you. Thank you. It's been my pleasure to be here with you. All right. Well, thank you so much to Kanaka Chavla of Sustainable Energy for All and UN Energy. Uh, the crisis in Afghanistan has loomed large over UNGA this year. Yesterday afternoon, I spoke with Peter Maurer of the International Committee for the Red Cross. He had earlier participated in a closed-door G20 meeting on Afghanistan. In our conversation, he describes the ICRC's ongoing work in Afghanistan and also his diplomatic priorities for Afghanistan during UNGA and going forward. Let's listen to that interview now. So I know you were recently in Afghanistan uh, surveying the work of the ICRC there. Can you just describe your ongoing projects and programs and activities in Afghanistan and to what extent they have changed over the last month since uh, the uh, Taliban government has taken over? We have been uh, engaged in Afghanistan over the last uh, more than 30 years. And we have been in Afghanistan when the Taliban had their first government. We have seen Afghanistan and been active uh, at quite high level of the institution. It, Afghanistan operation has remained one of the top five operations over the last five, uh, 20 years. And our focus in the past has been really on the health system, water sanitation system, supporting livelihoods uh, of populations, but also very strongly during the war, of course, of engaging with the parties to the conflict with regard to the respect of international humanitarian law. It was about the conduct of hostilities, the use of force according to uh, uh, the Geneva Conventions and this engagement was on all sides of the front line, meaning that we have engaged with the Taliban when they were uh, the, uh, the non-state armed group fighting the Afghan government. We have engaged with the Afghan National Army and with the foreign forces on the respect of international humanitarian law and the protection of civilians. We have visited detainees in Afghanistan, and this was an important part of our work. What uh, has changed in both areas, I would say that uh, after a couple of uh, days of insecurity, what was happening, our overall assistance programs in health, water, sanitation, and livelihoods have continued. Uh, and we have been able to operate uh, with the communities we are servicing, with the Afghan Recrescent, with which uh, we cooperate very closely. And so we have continued to work in hospitals, in clinics, uh, with water boards, uh, with livelihood projects. We have 1,800 people in Afghanistan, uh, 100 international, 1,700 Afghan local employees. And these employees basically continue to work as before. What has 
maybe just a, one last sentence. What what has changed is the orientation of some of our international humanitarian law and protection work. While uh, detention visits are not anymore the top priority because so many have come out of detention. Uh, we have focused on the vulnerable displaced population, on unaccompanied minors, on family reunification. That was the priority of the last uh, couple of weeks uh, uh, to which we reoriented some of our staff uh, with the respective expertise. Uh, may I ask, you mentioned you have many uh, staff uh, currently on the ground. Have you received assurances from the Taliban that your female staff will be able to continue to do their work? When I uh, visited and I had uh, my uh, working session with Mullah Baradar and uh, his closest aides, we got assurances that the staff of ICRC uh, should continue to work as before. Uh, that... Uh, was for me quite uh, an important assurance, although it was also quite an obvious assurance because we have worked in Taliban controlled territory in the past and we have been able to work in those territories and to find agreements with regard to our <coughs> female staff, which were reasonably uh, operational. So our staff continues uh, to come to work, uh, to be dispatched uh, to our field operation and to oversee some of these operations. The more complex reality is with regard to the Afghan Recrescent Societies, their volunteers. There are tens of thousands of volunteers of the Afghan Recrescent Society. We asked same treatment as for the ICRC, uh, which was by and large also guaranteed, but it is much more difficult to implement it. And we see that the realities in the field are different from one place uh, to another. There are places where they do continue to work, some places where they decided themselves to stay away, some places where Taliban local authorities uh, ask them to stay away. So the reality is not uh, uniform with regard to our female staff, and this is an issue we'll have to continue to work on. So uh, on Wednesday afternoon, you participated in a G20 meeting on Afghanistan on the sidelines of the UN General Assembly. What was accomplished in that meeting? Well, it's difficult to uh, maybe mention what has been accomplished. I think the whole sense of a meeting is that as Afghanistan becomes such a, an issue of global concerns, of neighbors, of uh, the permanent members of the Security Council, of regional, uh, of regional powers, that the G20 meeting somehow allowed each of the countries to define where their parameters, positions, and visions were. And I think uh, it has helped to clarify how states looks at certain things. I wouldn't say that at the present moment I'm uh, entirely comforted by the discussion. I think there is still a lot of disagreement uh, on how exactly to engage uh, with the Taliban, but overall I thought there was a general consent that the situation was in humanitarian terms difficult and that at least on humanitarian grounds engagement were important. I have heard some strong voices which support our vision 
that humanitarian action has to be unconditional. While I may, maybe you have seen, uh, I have made it clear that it is our also our understanding that political conditionality uh, uh, comes with uh, more extensive instruments than humanitarian assistance. So I think the idea of a bifurcation of the engagement structure with regard to Afghanistan on the one side to allow humanitarian actors uh, to operate, to engage, to support them, to uh, help them stabilize the situation is something which uh, uh, has, I think, increased support in the international community, the G20, while the exact way on how eventually to engage on further steps seems to me still very controversial amongst the G20 and the international community overall. It's it's interesting to hear you say that because we have heard suggestions from key member states, including the United States, that uh, the provision of humanitarian assistance is a point of leverage over which they can press on women's rights and human rights. And I'm referring to statements made by Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield last week at a press conference in which she, she suggested as much. Uh, and I'm wondering to what extent you are able to you know, push back against those notions. Well, I think uh, uh, positions are in evolution. And uh, I think uh, uh, maybe not everybody at the beginning of this conversation, which actually started a week ago with the Doda conference in Geneva, was uh, fully aware also of some of the uh, practices and policies that the international community very unanimously have adopted over a very long time. And I have to say that the unconditionality of humanitarian assistance is something which uh, has been broadly accepted and enshrined in multiple uh, international documents. But positions are evolving and uh, uh, at the same time, from our side, we have also to recognize, and I made that very clear yesterday, that while we opt and we advocate for non-conditionality of humanitarian aid, we also uh, make it very clear that efficient and effective and impactful humanitarian work can only be done by teams and for communities respecting diversity. It can only be done if security guarantees uh, are uh, operational and uh, are credible. Uh, so we will certainly refine the words on how we talk about these issues over the days and weeks to come. For us, uh, it is also obvious that if we want to service communities, we have to be able to reflect the, the diversity of those communities and we have to be able to do our work in security and uh, with maximum safety for our personnel. Well, sir, thank you so much for your time and uh, best of, of luck during this UN General Assembly week. Thank you. Thanks a lot for your interest. All right. Well, thank you so much to Peter Maurer of the International Committee for the Red Cross. And now to conclude this week of special programming, I speak with Elizabeth Cousins, President and CEO of the United Nations Foundation. 
We caught up just a couple of hours ago, and in this final segment, we discuss some of the key moments and outcomes from UNGA 76, and what this week in diplomacy suggests about the future of multilateralism. Let's listen. Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining me in what is our final segment of this special week-long series, and I'm glad we're able to conclude with you, a veteran of many UN General Assemblies. Uh, welcome. Thank you, Mark. Don't make me feel old, but it is good to be with you. <laughs> uh, I've, I've covered every UN General Assembly since 2005. I love it this time of year. All right. So we're <laughs> contemporaries in that sense. Okay, good. Uh, so I, I want to uh, kick off with you uh, getting some of your big picture impressions of this week in diplomacy. Uh, Guterres started off the week with a real profound warning to the world that we are on the abyss and moving in the wrong direction. Uh, did this week suggest to you one way or another uh, that world leaders took this warning seriously? Yeah, well, thanks, Mark. You know, the Secretary General has actually been warning for some time about the gravity of our situation and well before the pandemic. The pandemic has just put the sharpest possible point on all of those earlier warnings. And I do think we are finally seeing leaders take that seriously. So in speech after speech this week, we heard extremely blunt assessments, many of them in precisely the same terms as the Secretary General, you know, talking about our collective failure to date to act on the very clear warnings we see around the world world and the need for heightened international cooperation. You know, every tough issue we face is one that crosses borders. It's one that reinforces our interdependence. And so that imperative is so strong. And just think about a few of the speeches we heard. So President Biden talked about how the biggest crises affecting us today are borderless. The South African president said the COVID-19 pandemic has forever changed the nature of multilateral engagement. Philippines, we need to expand our notion of us. Costa Rica, the best way uh, to deal with our interconnected planet and the best way to be selfish is to be supportive and generous. We heard speech after speech sounding those kind of themes, equally also from business leaders who were speaking in other fora throughout the week. And it goes beyond speeches. So, you know, I would point to a number of the new climate commitments we saw over the last week. Not far enough, but farther than we'd been and extremely important. I think important new commitments at the COVID summit that was convened by the White House this, uh, this week on Wednesday. And, you know, none of that takes away from still how far we need to go and from the fact that there are, of course, very real divisions and tensions in the world that are part of the story, too. But I do think this week, in, a, in an important new way, galvanized some new commitments and momentum that we really need to build on. It's interesting. To a certain degree, I thought that much of this week, to use the UN parlance, served almost as a pre-summit to COP26. Absolutely. Look, the COP is in the very near foreground as the next big test of, uh, of leaders' ability to step up in the way that all of their citizens are asking them for, that all of our children are asking us for, that business leaders are clamoring for. You know, one of the other announcements this week was that over 150 shipping industry leaders called for deep decarbonization of the shipping industry by 2050. And what they're calling on is for governments to take the steps they need to do to make that happen. So there's just a new level of urgency that is really resounding in so many quarters. Again, not everywhere, but much more than ever before. Uh, so earlier in September, the Secretary General released Our Common Agenda, a sort of blueprint for how to reinvigorate multilateralism. I know you were involved in this process. Can you explain what Our Common Agenda includes and how it may potentially inform future UNGAs? 
Yeah, no, thanks, Mark. And maybe just a little bit of context first. So your listeners will definitely know that the UN turned 75 last year. And at the time, world leaders signed up to something called the UN 75 Declaration that named a whole set of global challenges, just like the ones we've been talking about. And that also asked the Secretary General to report back in a year with his ideas about how to deal with them. So our common agenda is his report that answers that call. It lays out his vision. It makes a number of very specific proposals for how to renew, to reinvent, and to strengthen cooperation to deliver real results for real people in real ways. And he lays out three basic arenas for action. First, uh, work that governments and citizens need to do to repair broken trust and inequity in their societies. You know, all of our countries are the building blocks of the world, and so global cooperation really only works when we're all in slightly better shape. Second, work that we all need to do to deliver for young people and future generations. You know, half the world today is under 30. 10 billion people are expected to be born in this century still. So young people are today inheriting crises. They had nothing to do with creating, and that clearly has to change. That's his second big call. And third, he talks about ways we need to rethink global cooperation to deal with both old and new threats. So he talks about protecting the global commons, like our climate. He talks about global public goods we need to invest in, like pandemic preparedness. He calls for a new agenda for peace and has specific proposals for ways to better deal with future risks and threats. He makes a very compelling case. This is all essential to be able to meet all the prior commitments that have been made, like the Sustainable Development Goals. And all of this essentially reflects you know, his thinking about a new model of multilateralism that, in his words, needs to be more inclusive and more networked to meet um, the modern age. So just one last point on this. Um, I'm especially excited about the prominence that the SG in this report gives to young people. I think it's probably UN first that he actually asked young people to produce a shadow report uh, to contribute to his thinking, but also to lay out their own. That's a report called Our Future Agenda. It's a phenomenal piece of work produced by a group of next generation fellows. We were very proud to be able to support them at the UN Foundation, but all to say it is a really bracing new agenda. There's a level of urgency that I've not ever seen in a UN report um, ever before in my career. And it really is calling on all of us to respond with exactly uh, the sense of speed and ambition that the moment in the world requires. And I'm going to be sure to put a link to that report in the show notes of this episode and on undispatch.com so listeners can, can read it themselves. Uh, but your comments just now help me better understand uh, a comment that Guterres made uh, during the Food Systems Summit. He commended the Food Systems Summit for, quote, injecting new life into multilateralism. That's kind of struck me as an interesting thing, a sort of big picture thing for Secretary General to say at a very specific meeting on uh, food systems. But your uh, comments right now about our common agenda kind of give me the context to better understand what he meant by that. Well, think about who shows up at something like a food system summit. It's smallholder farmers, it's indigenous groups, it's consumers, producers, it's companies, it's governments. It's a reflection of the, the kind of full diversity of everybody who has a stake in a food system that works. So I think that's probably part of what he had in mind. And that kind of thinking is very much at the heart of how he envisions multilateral cooperation has to be in this very networked, super connected um, and very interdependent world we live in. Uh, on the other hand, were there perhaps events or processes or, or moments where this week fell short, in, in your opinion, of kind of living up to that new kind of multilateralism? 
Well, look, sure, we can always use more because the world is really ferocious right now. And, you know, the first and most cru crucial test for everyone is COVID. So we did see important steps coming out of this vaccine summit, or not vaccine summit, overall COVID summit, because it dealt both with vaccines, but also with a whole spectrum of measures that need to be to be need to be taken and called for time bound commitments, a roadmap to meeting them. So that was a new, a new seriousness, I think we, sh we saw there. But of course, we need more uh, and, and, and deeper work there. Um, we did see an important week on climate. I will say personally, I was a bit disappointed um, at the continuing tension there remains over this question of climate change and security. So there was an important meeting of the Security Council that dealt with that topic yesterday, but there are still deep divisions within the council about whether it's appropriate to talk about security and climate change in the council. I think that's a debate we have just got to get past. But overall, for me, the balance sheet of the week is actually more positive than not because there were really concrete steps that were new steps taken on some of the most critical issues we face. And the task for all of us is just to hold our leaders uh, and our representatives uh, to, to, to the commitments that they've made this week and beyond. So how do you then take that momentum you just described and, you know, build on it. And, and as you said, kind of hold leaders to account. Is there a coming inflection point? We, we know COP26 is a, is a big moment. Is there anything, say, between now and COP26 that you're looking out for? Well, I think first, let's say on COVID, coming out of this COVID summit, there was a commitment to produce a roadmap. Let's see what that roadmap is. Let's really press for it to be produced quickly and then and then use that as our as our guide for continued advocacy and action. COP26 is obviously right around the corner and we need urgent mobilization on climate. We're simply running out of time. Everyone now recognizes that the latest UN report that totals up countries' pledges so far shows that we are on track for a warming of 2.7 degrees Celsius. So the difference between that and the one and a half degrees that everyone is aiming for is not just 1.2 degrees. It's an exponential change in terms of lives, economies, and extraordinary disruptions to all of our basic systems if we don't rein it in. So that's very much um, some of the most immediate next steps. But I think we also need to take this, you know, the outcomes of this week into our own lives and our own politics and our own countries, because there are all kinds of issues on our respective agendas that relate to some of the topics that are being discussed at the global level, but that very much are about, you know, the choices we make right here at home and in every country around the world. So there are all kinds of near-term steps that I think we can also take as individuals, as leaders in our own communities, uh, around uh, exactly the kind of imperatives that were discussed here this week. Uh, well, Elizabeth, thank you so much for your time at the tail end of a very hectic week. Thank you. Thanks so much, Mark. It's been a real pleasure spending time with you. Big thank you to Elizabeth Cousins and to all our guests throughout this special week of live coverage of the UN General Assembly. I had a lot of fun. I hope you enjoyed it and found our coverage useful. If so, I'd love to hear from you. You can email me using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com or hit me up on Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg. Thank you all for your time this week, and we'll see you next week. Today's episode was produced in partnership with the United Nations Foundation. Special thanks to Rajesh Chandani of the UN Foundation and to our production team at Revent. It has been a great week. Thank you all. Bye.